Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. We end our series of interviews today with historian Molly McGarry, associate professor of history at the University of California, Riverside. Dr. McGarry has never been shy about sharing her research. In fact, she has curated museum exhibits at the New York Public Library, the Jewish Museum, and the University of California's Museum of Photography. Dr. McGarry has been honored by the Smithsonian, the American Association of Museums, and the Society of American Archivists, among others. So we were delighted when she agreed to sit down with researcher Carl Nellis to discuss her book, Ghosts of Futures Past, and the Power of Spiritualism in America. I think that you'll find Dr. McGarry's incredible insight into spiritualism and her consideration for what it still means today make this conversation the perfect place to wrap up our series. Thanks so much for listening. Without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Molly McGarry. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 2. I'm Aaron Mankey. To be a spiritualist was never one thing. There were always many spiritualisms, both in the 19th century and beyond. So some people came to the seance tables seeking answers, wanting deeply to commune with lost loved ones. Um, Others were curious investigators, looking to see for themselves what this new technology could materialize. Um, But what I found and what I've been most struck by is that many spiritualists took seriously the possibility of channeling the voices of the dead as a means of both connecting with the past and imagining both worldly and otherworldly futures. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the world where that kind of mindset and that kind of perspective and belief uh, could come into being. There are religious threads and technological, scientific, historical. Um, Maybe let's start kind of on the political side and say 
um, dig into what historians mean when they would talk about something like Jacksonian democracy in American life. In the decades before spiritualism arrived, uh, arrived on the scene, what do we mean by that? And what influence did something like a democratic spirit or a Jacksonian democracy have on American religion? Well, Jacksonian democracy, of course, refers to a series of political movements around the ter- two-term presidency of Andrew Jackson, so 1829 to 1837. And the most significant change affected by Jacksonian democracy was the extension of the franchise of the vote to white men over the age of 21 who did not own property. So that that was new. Um, At the same time, those same white men who had been granted the vote became a key constituency in keeping others from getting the vote. So the democracy of Jacksonianism was always severely limited. Um, I should probably also add that Jacksonian democracy is also intimately tied with settler colonialism, with Indian genocide, empire building, clearing the West for a new manifest destiny. That said, there were real changes and forms of democratization, but maybe to cast the lens a little bit wider, um, spiritualism was born of an era of enormous social change and fervent anti-authorian impulses. So for many spiritualists, small group communalism took the place of institutionalized religion, alternative healing replaced male-dominated medicine, um, and the voices of priests and ministers were drowned out by the spirits themselves. So this was a very different imagination and formation of antebellum democracy. And I would also add that actually in terms of you know, Democrats versus Republicans, that, that in many ways that what became the Republican Party um, was much more important for sort of fueling the, the, and peopling spiritualism itself. So I could say more about that, but I think it's, it's interesting that spiritualists were actually crucial to the Free Democratic Party and then present at the 1854 birth of the Republican Party. And spiritualism actually functions as a kind of political theology, which provided the third-party insurgency that became the Republican Party um, with a deeper, open-ended theology of free labor and a deep faith in the national rebirth, a kind of millennial Second American Revolution. In that context, where it is a movement that's so um, that that's breaking down or cutting against so many of these hierarchies, it's interesting that early on, spirits like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, William Penn, white male authority figures, statesmen, appear to various seance circles and trans lecturers. Uh, sometimes they're addressing just one or two people through the Fox sisters, especially uh, the Post household early on records, you know, Benjamin Franklin showing up and Isaac Post is taking down their message. Um, but sometimes they're addressing large crowds through a trans lecturer like Cora Scott. And, you know, she's saying, this is Thomas Jefferson. And he says, mm-hmm. um, what do these kind of appearances tell us about um, <laughs> a relationship to a particular kind of past, to a history in a kind of anti-authoritarian collectivist movement? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think, I think what Spirit said reveals most about who they said it to. So following that logic, seance revelations provide a kind of unique window into what at least a segment of 19th century Americans might have wanted to know, both from their own dead ancestors, as well as from other actors who peopled America's past and its history. Um, The ghost of George Washington often offered blessings to spirit circles, 
presumably as a founding father giving national foundational stature to this seemingly marginal movement. Um, William Penn, the spirit of William Penn, often appeared with vaguely Quaker messages of peace and of nonviolence. And Benjamin Franklin was ubiquitous, the ghost of, of Benjamin Franklin, the great inventor. Um, as an inventor and as a scientist, his spirit is often called up to offer scientific imprimatur for a new spiritualist media, literally. Um, the raps and knocks of mediums echo the spiritualist telegraph and spiritualist media, both in terms of mediums, but in terms of these other kind of technologies, um, were very much enmeshed in conversations and investigations into electricity. And spiritualists imagined themselves investigators who who a, a Benjamin Franklin would offer blessings to. I'd love to hear a little bit more about technology because it does seem to be so significant for spiritualism. Um, the telegraph, new canals opening up, railroads, um, thinking about people's relationship to distance and time and communication changing, even the explosion mm -hmm. of periodicals at the, at the moment. Can you talk a little more about spiritualism and its relationship to technology? Yes. Um, so spiritualism, this popular religious practice conducted through communication with the spirits of the dead, was born in a century and popularized during a time of newly proliferating media technologies. When speaking to the dead may have seemed no less strange than communicating across cables or capturing the living on film. So spiritualism at once transformed ordinary Americans into spiritual mediums, that sense of media, and transfigured new forms of information and technological media into the means of the movement's proliferation. So just to sort of set up, set up the dates, um, Samuel Morse's electrical telegraph was introduced in 1844, so it predated the Fox sisters' 1848 invention of spirit wrapping. But their communication, that is spirit wrapping, with its telegraphic typing, its encoded sequences, and subsequent inscriptions of messages from the dead was almost immediately dubbed the spiritual telegraph, as was one of the first spiritualist newspapers, which extended the connection as it spread the news. In this atmosphere of all these new technologies, communication technologies, reaching places they hadn't been before, there are also other ideas about the human mind and the way that we think... Uh, what's going on inside of our bodies and our relationship of our bodies to something like a mind uh, with mesmerism and phrenology and related practices that were kind of horizons of applied science that people were lecturing about on the circuit. Um, how, did, how did these kinds of understandings and practices around what a human mind was contribute to the foundations for spiritualism? Well, there were, a, there were a number of investigators interested in these new sciences of head reading and mind reading, so phrenology and mesmerism, um, in the 1830s and 1840s. And they later became spiritualists. So that's the most obvious connection. But like mesmerism, and I think phrenology to a lesser extent, spiritualism responded to a growing interest in ecstatic experiences. So the fits, trances, and visions experienced in religious revivals. Uh, and they were interested in, in using scientific thinking and explanatory systems to, to understand the relationship between mind and body. Um, and as you point out, mesmerism and phrenology were studies at the horizons of applied science in the early 19th century, um, addressing the meanings and connections between the soul, brain, and psyche. Uh, 
that these are now considered pseudosciences or debunked sciences was not inevitable. It certainly wasn't inevitable at the time. And all of these all of these investigations into that kind of nexus, that triangle between religion, science, and magic were working on the same kinds of questions. Um, they were imbricated and shifting during the 19th century and, well, and arguably to this day. But what rose as science and what was designated as religion or spurned as magic or superstition was always about gatekeeping, about what counts as religion proper, that is good religion, religion that stays in its place, uh, real science, testable in a laboratory, and large questions about rationality, about modernity, and how you know, seemingly marginal practices like spiritualism might fit into this. But spiritualists, spiritualists understood themselves as investigators, as popular scientists who attended seances under test conditions. So spiritualism supplied both the language and the technology to test the unseen boundary between this world and the next. Um, so eventually, as mesmerism and phrenology faded over the course of the 19th century, spiritualism eventually became another site for a sophisticated struggle over some of the most vexing issues of the day. Um, questions about the nature of scientific knowledge and the possibilities, and I suppose also the limits, of the scientific method in understanding phenomenon like mediumship. There are magnetizers traveling around, putting people in trances. Um, there are, uh, you know, uh, abolitionist movements that are connected, operating the Underground Railroad to places mm -hmm. like Rochester, where the telegraph has arrived. And we come to the year 1848. And you do a beautiful job in your work of talking about the global context of what was going on in 1848. Can you, can you put the Fox sisters in the transatlantic context for us? 1848 was a year like few others. Um, maybe 1968 was a year like this. There are very few years that have this almost talismanic quality where the year itself contains so much that it's, it's hard to even understand the kind of revolutionary impulses that are swirling around the globe. So in the year 1848 alone, Revolutions ignited across the world, from France to Brazil, uh, but also from Sicily to the Austrian Empire. And revolutions swept the globe during that year. Um, of course, also in 1848, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto, opening with the line, a specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. Um, and in that same year, two young girls heard communiques from a very different sort of specter, giving rise to a quite different revolution. But the revolutionary impulses that fueled these very different international global revolutions were a kind of world spirit. Um, each, each of them had a different specific history that, um, you know, that explains why things broke out in different places at different times. But the year itself was one that if pe reading writings from those times, the sense of revolutionary possibility was in the air and it was in and it was in the air across the globe. One of the people who was expressing that sense of revolutionary possibility through a new publication was Frederick Douglass. He and William C. Nell moved to Rochester and they launched the North Star, the, the paper that would be connected with with Douglass for the rest of his life. Um, how did they imagine their new publication in the context of 
a local community, but also a, a global liberation movement. Rochester, New York was an interesting place in the 19th century. So for Frederick Douglass and others, it became a center of abolitionist organizing. It's there where they published the abolitionist newspaper, The North Star. And the Celestial North Star, of course, is the marker in the night sky pointing the way towards freedom from the south to the north. And not coincidentally, Rochester is bordered on its north shore by Lake Ontario, the waterway that separates the U.S. from Canada. So flight to Canada was possible at that almost visible border. Um, Douglas's North Star Circle in Rochester was a key center in a global movement for freedom. And Douglas and Nell obviously launched the North Star, and that newspaper is crucially important. Douglas's organizing was important. But there are also figures like Harriet Jacobs, uh, who went on to write incidents in the life of a slave girl who landed in Rochester at that same time, and not coincidentally. Um, in 1849, Harriet Jacobs moved to Rochester to help her brother John run the anti-slavery reading room, which was located above the offices where Frederick Douglass published the North Star. And at that time, and probably in that place, Jacobs also began a lifelong friendship with Amy Post, who was a radical Quaker, a longstanding abolitionist, an early activist in, in the cause of women's rights, and, not coincidentally, one of the earliest proponents of spiritualism. Um, and there's whole, lots more to say about, about Amy Post, but as scholars have documented, Jacobs told her story to Post in 1849, and between that time and the time that Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl was published in 1861, it's precisely those circles of abolitionists that make possible speaking tours and, um, and, and eventually the publication of that work. And it's also, it's also the posts who host the Foxes, this family, yeah. when they arrive in Rochester and uh, eventually send them off to a hamlet called Hydesville. Um, who were the Fox family and what was their relationship like with the posts? in in those years well i should say amy post was um she, again she's she's sort of deeply deeply involved in in a series of movements she's also the cousin we're gonna get into like the family tree on this she was the cousin of a man named elias hicks yeah who had organized the hicksite separation in 1827 but the, the fact was is that she came from a, a family of religious radicals who had thought that the Quaker establishment had grown too orthodox, too comfortable with the material institutions of the world, including slavery. So it's, um, it is the power of, of the posts in many ways that both radicalize the movement, but also provide a home for the Fox sisters. So as the story goes, as you know, um, in March of, of 1848, Maggie Fox, Margaret Fox, usually called Maggie, age 13, and Kate, her younger sister, who's 12 at the time, heard the knocks of a spirit of supposedly a murdered peddler. Um, they determined that the raps were coming from this ghost who communicated by making a knocking sound in answer to a yes, no question, or by rapping out letters of the alphabet. And again, you see that you see this, the the connection with Morse's telegraph and and the particular kind of telegraphic typing and coded sequences and subsequent inscriptions from the dead and 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 why um, the term the spiritual telegraph would have been used so quickly. But anyway, as soon as the raps were heard in this little town called Hydesville, which is not far from Rochester in central New York, um, 
get people came to hear the knocks and raps from all around. And soon they be, began receiving messages from the Fox sisters about dead relatives, about things that presumably the sisters would have no other knowledge of. And the news of this unquiet household spread. So the family, that is the Fox family, decamped to Rochester, left Hydesville to, to leave the, the, the throngs and crowds, and went to Rochester to the home of the third Fox sister, the older sister of, of Maggie and Kate, whose name is Leah Fox Fish. Um, later, Underhill. She was an old family friend of Isaac and Amy Post, who later became a medium as well. So the Posts took an early, if initially skeptical, interest in the two local celebrities, in the Fox sisters. But their interest soon grew as the girls seemed able to communicate with recently deceased friends and loved ones. And while some of the messages they brought from the dead were banal or just wrong, um, there was enough that was right and that that it fit. And it also fit in the context in which um, the splits and schisms of the Quakers were all of a sudden receiving, um, you know, messages from beyond that they were doing the good work in the world. And word spreads pretty quickly. Uh, it brought it brought seekers to Hydesville first, but then also to Rochester. And then out from Rochester, the practice of table wrappings spreads. Um, within three years after those wrappings, spiritualism traveled to England. Um, how was it received when it got outside of its, you know, its the context of its origin and, and these Quakers and the religious impulses in the burned over district? Once spiritualism spreads outside of that cradle, what's the response? Well, in many ways, you could argue that spiritualism in America predates the 1848 knockings. Um, belief in spirit communication has long, even ancient roots across cultures. Um, regular communication with the spirit world features prominently in Native American cosmologies, and Europeans and Africans brought forms of spiritism with them to American shores. So I don't want to collapse important differences here. Um, that said, in many ways, you could argue that Spiritualism in America predates the 1848 knockings. So when spiritualism becomes a global movement, it becomes one for the same reasons that it had power in the United States. So these religious reform movements, very specific ones that are coming out of the burned over district, but others uh, across the world differently, but in some ways similarly, are drawing on a kind of the twin reservoirs of elite and folk discourse that had a sense of a form of spiritualism. So in some cases, and internationally, it's about Unitarians and Universalists, about Freemasons and free lovers, about Shakers and Quakers and Mormons and Millerites. But all of that rich soil that became the kind of spiritual hotbed that, that birthed American spiritualism had enough that connected it to distinctive but older folk traditions and, you know, maybe even just older desires for spiritual contact and connection that translated and spread. You write that uh, in your book that spiritualism was similar to many of the other kind of radical anti-clerical strains of Protestantism at the time. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, and that it sought to make religious hierarchy. And you said this at the beginning, too, and, and kind of... 
the control of expertise by uh, white men and their kind of uh, the boundaries around authority uh, obsolete. And it wasn't that it, uh, it eliminated the idea of revelation through a medium or that it was mediated by someone in particular, but it changed the rules of who could be the go-between. Can you talk a little bit about the consequences of these changes, maybe in the context of the Seneca Falls Convention, which was also part of that revolutionary spirit in 1848? And they were all connected. I mean, the most obvious uh, and unique thing about spiritualism is that women and sometimes young girls like the Fox sisters were placed at the center of spirit circles. So at a time in the middle of the 19th century where the idea of women speaking in public was anathema, all of a the sudden there were these women and children speaking in voices that presumably were not their own. But in doing so, they were taking center stage in a way that had not been seen before. And actually, Anne Browdy argues that, that of the women speaking in public at that time of the 19th century, spiritualists outnumber all other public speakers. So it becomes a way for women to find, women and girls to find a different voice. Although this gets really tricky because they're vessels of a sort. They're not presumably speaking in their own words. They're, they're channeling messages from beyond. So what spiritualism allows for is a kind of remaking of women, middle-class white women, I should say, as, as pure, as receptive, as passive, all of those qualities that seemingly made them unfit for public life made them perfectly fit as the empty vessels who could channel the spirits and the words of others from beyond. You write that the roots of spiritualism in radical communities, and including the women's rights movement at the time, meant that spiritualists, when they went to England, spiritualists like Maria Hayden, um, had access to some well-known reformers and, and uh, utopians like Robert Owen and other European radicals. Can you briefly describe the political situation in England uh, kind of at the time that would have opened space for people like Robert Owen and for spiritualists who had connections to him? Again, this goes beyond, beyond the scope of my knowledge, and okay, I was sort of okay. looking this up in the morning. No, but it's but it's but it's super fascinating, and that that the kind of Anglo-American movement, the movement back and forth across the Atlantic, is absolutely crucial to the to the structuring practice of spiritualism. And it, it's not just that that mediums moved back and forth, or that there were speakers who you know went on circuits and traveled, but you know as you point out that there were there were these connections of 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 folks, and what it meant is that it opened very powerful doors very quickly. So what I know about that particular case is, is that medium um, was very well connected and, and you know, someone who, can, who knows more can tell you about it. But that combination of, of mediumship media, which is to say a lot of people who had um, relationships with the press that was, that was that enabled a kind of mediation of these, um, of these experiences and of this movement meant that doors swung open in ways that they, that seems really surprising from our vantage. Let's jump to uh, spiritualism and the institution of marriage. We've been talking about kind of the instant, the anti-institutional impulse uh, and its relationship to spiritualism. Uh, marriage is like Cora Hatch's marriage to Benjamin Hatch or Victoria Woodhull's early marriage to Canning. Um, what do they tell us about marriage and gendered power more broadly in American life 
in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. And 1870s, where people like Victoria Woodhull really challenged the, uh, well, I'll get to Victoria Woodhull, but to begin with the, the question that you asked in the 1840s and 50s, I mean, it, it's probably worth saying that coverture, which is the legal doctrine in which the married woman is literally covered politically, socially, and economically by her husband, meant that marriage was an institution in which women gave up their power, figuratively and literally. Uh, so spiritualists become among the group of folks, and really starting in the 1850s, they ally um, in some ways with also free love advocates. And I should say, from... Um, from our vantage point, free love sounds very 60s or 70s, um, and it's you know it, it it sounds like a kind of untrammeled sexual license, which it really wasn't. Um, free love advocates who often had ties to the abolition movement frequently invoked comparisons between marriage and chattel slavery. How, however, deeply problematic that is for you know these these white free love advocates to do. Um, but nonetheless, spiritualism and free love with its idea of elected affinities directly attacked the often coercive bodily bonds of marriage. So the idea was is that, um, I, this gets complicated, but the notion of spiritual affinities is such that um, in some versions, everyone has a spiritual affinity, a spiritual mate that they might find in this world or perhaps the next. But free love advocates dissolved their marriages with much more frequency than did many of their contemporaries in the 19th century. And the idea was is if there was a spiritual affinity that would override the earthly bonds of marriage, then that earthly legal marriage should be dissolved for the, the more um, spiritually affinitive that's not a word <laughs> for a different <laughs> kind of spiritual affinity that would be the you know the real the real the real love um so that's that and um cora hatch is married for five times andrew jackson davis who is a, a male medium at the time again who who um actually uses a lot of those same victorian ideas at least when he's young about being susceptible, impressionable, virtuous, pious, um, and and is able to kind of to, to use those those characteristics that would not be fitting for uh, a different kind of active uh, man um, becomes a way for him to also create a kind of uh, this unconventional notion of of um, masculinity, but but most significantly, he dissolves his marriages over and over in this kind of free love. So, so that connection between free love and spiritualism is real. Um, it is also true that many spiritualists at the time decried free love and refused the connection and saw free love as really tarnishing the especially religious impulses of spiritualism. So there there is there are many as many detractors of uh, of free love within the 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 worlds of spiritualism as there are spiritualists who become free lovers um but when you think of someone like like cora hatch but really uh victoria woodhull and tennessee claflin and tennessee claflin is uh, victoria woodhull's sister and they attacked the double standard the sexual double standard as well as the the, the sort of hypocrisies of marriage and they attacked them in print and they attacked powerful men um, it, it's kind of amazing looking back on it in this moment because – so Claflin described 
I would say modestly explained her incredibly radical project that she and her sister Victoria Woodhull took up. And she she wrote, we've we've tried, and, and this was a kind of attack on the 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 rights that the the rakish man had and that the, the woman was made to bear the blame of this, of the sexual double standard. So Claflin writes, we've tried to make rake as disgraceful as whore. We can't do it. And now we are determined to take the disgrace out of whore. That's in the 1870s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I still find that incredibly, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that, that it's just, it's so ahead of its time and in so many ways. So, so folks like Claflin and Woodhull are, are at the outer edges of spiritualism. That said, the, um, the movement made room for a kind of range of ways of being in the world that would not have, um, that would not have fit in many, certainly religious communities in the United States at the time. Um, but also political communities. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that because um, you have mediums like the Fox Sisters and Cora and Emma Britton who were closer toward the center of spiritualism. You have the Woodhulls who, <laughs> well, well, Victoria Woodhull and, and Tenney who who uh, <laughs> stir up trouble for spiritualism when they be, you know with those attachments. But you also have male mediums like you mentioned Andrew Jackson Davis, and we're talking a bit about uh, Daniel Douglas, whom as well. Um, can you say a little bit more about um, masculinity and femininity and gender and power in spiritualism and how, maybe by contrasting these, these figures, um, how they, they challenged or adapted or remixed some of these ideas about what a man or a woman should do or be? Spiritualism provided a different kind of home for a range of gendered masculinities and femininities that would not have fit comfortably into every Victorian community. And part of that was about embracing a notion of receptivity. So, you know, mediums open themselves to other spirits. They're, they, they, they take up 19th century Victorian notions of the virtues of white female womanhood that allow certain kinds of power for women and girls to speak in public, as we talked about before, but also a range of masculinities for men who might have sat, you know, outside the, the, the strictures or boundaries of what was possible for Victorian men. So um, Andrew Jackson Davis, who starts his career very young, it, and he then goes on to become one of the major writers and figures of 19th century spiritualism. But when he begins, he's, he's very young and he is developed by a mesmerist, um, and and the, even the term "developed," the idea of being developed as a medium is 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 passive. It it happens to the medium. Developed like film. I mean, these kind of media technologies. It's 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 more than analogy, but it's everywhere as analogy and metaphor. So once a medium like Andrew Jackson Davis is developed as a medium, he was then he then followed the stronger control, who was also a man. Um, Later in his life, Andrew Jackson Davis marries a much older woman. The idea of her strength and age was that she would also be a more powerful control. So you have this kind of shifting notions of of gender and power that, um, again, exceed what was possible in, in many Victorian communities at the time. Um, as spiritualism grew, and it grew pretty fast, um, how did the various church traditions or, or some of these communities that were really centered around institutions that are being challenged 
uh, how did they respond to spiritualism and the challenges opposed to hierarchy across these various valences? The most honest answer is it worked differently and it worked differently across different traditions. So you have Quakers, especially Hicksite Quakers, uh, you know, creating the foundation for spiritualism to grow in a place like Rochester. At, on, you know, on the other end, you have someone like Orestes Brownson writing um, publicly that he is converting to Catholicism because the feminized, you know, weak <laughs> kinds of movements that are coming out of this feminization of American Protestantism um, made him yearn for the strictures and hierarchies of the Catholic Church. So both on the individual level and on the collective community level, they're, they're real, they're, there's a real range of response. I don't know if churches actually came out against spiritualists or how that how that might have worked. I think a lot of the major denominations prefer to ignore spiritualism and hope it would go away. Like, how is this possibly going to last? Um, but within the movement and within the press, which I've you know, spent a lot of time reading, there's a lot of um, correspondence discussing, you know, what, what some pastor had said or the attacks coming from someone who was leaving, you know, to, to, to find a, a, a more proper good religion and and spiritualism then becomes the the foil um against which these you know properly ministered and institutional churches can define themselves against spiritualism was also often positioned sometimes in the press sometimes by spiritualists themselves in their own press vehicles um kind of at an interesting midpoint between what we could crudely call like faith and science uh for believers it was sometimes, you know, a field of empirical proofs for belief in the spirit world. Um, while for materialists or dissenters, it was uh, kind of a horizon of knowledge in the natural world. Um, was this kind of liminal zone, was it more of an asset or a liability for spiritualists in the 1850s? I would say it was absolutely an asset. That idea of a liminal zone, I think, is is exactly right. Spiritualists refused the distinction between religion and science. They denied that a warfare or even that a divide exists between religion and science and instead offered up an alchemical combination of religion and science wrapped in popular positivism. So spiritualism was a vernacular science and spiritualists saw, I should say, most spiritualists saw themselves as vernacular scientists, as investigators. Um, it was also a religious practice and sometimes just excellent theater. But the language around spiritualism was all about that relationship between faith and science. So a very um, well-known book from the time was called Proof Palpable, the idea that the, the manifestations of spiritual spiritualists provide proof palpable that could be studied in the lab, that can be shown by investigators um, of the existence of a spirit world. So from the very beginning, the connections to technology, to science, uh, all of that was was born into the movement. You mentioned uh, the spiritualist press. Uh, what were the banner of light and the herald of progress, and why were periodicals like these important for the history of spiritualism? Spiritualists published voluminously throughout the, especially throughout the second half of the of the nineteenth century, and it is what has made the research possible that many of us have done. So there's 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 voluminous 
writings by spirituals in the 19th century. There's now an almost equally extensive historiography on the subject. Um, but it was incredibly important for the movement, for spreading the word. Um, spiritualists in many ways were um, organized in their home circles, in their seance circles, in small group communalism. But the community of print, of readers who met in camp meetings and in lecture on the lecture circuit was only one part of the spiritualist community. I mean, when you think of all of the readers, um, this kind of imagined community that was made possible by the hugely burgeoning, incredibly diverse nationalist spiritualist press, um, then you get at a sense of, um, of the kind of power of the spreading of this word. And spiritualism has one of one of the difficulties of studying spiritualism is that it doesn't it doesn't provide the same kind of obvious means of either counting or accounting for spiritualism. So there are no membership roles. Um, there are no churches. You can't count, you know, adherence in the same way that you could with a more you know traditional uh, religious study. Um, and it isn't until really late in the waning days of spiritualism that they become in interested. Well, there, there's interest earlier, but it's only in the waning days at the end of the 19th century that spiritualist institutions really start going. So the press for much of the 19th century is that institution. It's the it's the network. It's the 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 interweaving of um, of people and places that were um, that were brought together in this um in this kind of, well, in this imagined community. And of the net, I mean, you could also probably say like networks also played a, a vital role within um, spiritualist circles, whether it's networks of rope held by participants in some seance circles to connect them, like the, you know, like, like the electromagnetic flows in a battery. Um, they created a vast network of communications between heaven and earth. Um, networks of transportation, obviously, there are these new networks of transportation from the railroad to the Erie Canal, which, of course, Rochester is you know, connected right in the all that, uh, as well as networks of subtle energies that were connecting that were connecting people in seance circles. When it comes to some of the early tallies, there is that interesting point in 1854, when interest in spiritualism had grown so much that although we don't have kind of a, a sum total number of the movement, there's that one expression of a swell of interest in that 15,000 people petitioned the United States Senate to fund a scientific commission to investigate spiritualism. Um, what was the result of, of that attempt? It was tabled but it created more publicity for the movement. So that moment in 1854, when Senator James Shields, then of Illinois, he went on to be a senator in two other states as well, when he takes these 15,000 signatures to Congress, he's at once met with some derision. Uh, but the argument was that Congress was funding you know, investigations into electricity, so why not spiritualism? And that they're seen as similar at that time is so extraordinary to me. But um, nothing happened with that particular petition. But the fact of 15,000 people signing it um, was huge. And again, even though it was tabled, the investigation didn't happen, Congress didn't move forward, the Senate didn't move forward, um, the, the publicity around it increased interest for the movement without question. So that's a kind of key moment in a lot of ways, I think. Mm -hmm. Let's shuffle a little 
uh, even a little more into political history of the era because this is the decade after the the American invasion of Mexico and the gold rush, uh, the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Nebraska Act is 1854. Um, so at this point, how were Americans in the East thinking about the West? What was a, what was the presence of the West in the imagination of some of these groups in New York that were, if there's a center to spiritualism, which is a really dispersed movement, um, how was the West featuring in, in the imagination of spiritualism at the time? Well, I think in multiple ways. Um, on the one hand, the, this, especially before the Civil War, the West was seen by many Americans on the East Coast as what was called the Great Desert, that there that it was this, you know, open, open plain and waiting to be conquered with the spirit of manifest destiny. On the other hand, spiritualists moved to the West Coast. So there's spiritualists encampments that can be traced um, throughout the West. So that, I mean, just as one example, Cora Hatch's father goes to Wisconsin to um to form a kind of version of Hopedale there. So there are these movements west, forming um, forming communities in the west. Um, California, yesterday as today, has become a kind of spiritual hotbed. So eventually spiritualists move to San Diego and Madame Tingley's Loma Land. Um, spiritualism comes west to uh, just a, a place near Santa Barbara that is still called Summerland, named after the spiritualist idea of the afterlife not just a vacation spot. Um, so there are these, on the one hand, there is this imagination of the West as this, at least among, you know, a certain, a certain kind of ideological conception of the West as wide open for the taking. There are also real spiritualists who are looking at that, especially the West Coast, as a place that would become the kind of um, next movement forward, the next, the next place for, um, for building a spiritualist community. And they do. From, from very early on, uh, and you've also written a lot about this, um, spiritualism's, <laughs> spiritualists claimed to be under the control of, of Native American spirit guides, Indian spirit guides, controls. Um, what does this tell us about what spiritualists thought about uh, Native nations, Native peoples? It's complicated. <laughs> um, spiritualists relied on a... Anglo-American cultural understanding of Native Americans as highly spiritual and mapped onto the spirit world the colonial relationship of the Indian as a figure as a guide for the white man. So spiritualists positioned Native Americans as spirit guides, as vital links between this world and the next. Um, it was the Indian guide who could bring spiritualists through the veil, tracing the invisible footprints beyond. Um, that said, these performances were a way of staging Indians vanishing, their disappearance, right? They're Indian ghosts. So on the one hand, spiritualists are interested in, um, in spectral Indians, which is to say dead Indians. Um, and as such, they're, they're part of, um, of a larger kind of national engagement with um, a notion of the vanishing Indian, of vanishing tribes. There's a huge literature in the 19th century, the last of the Mohicans being the, the most famous among them. But from these nostalgic, nostalgic portrayals of dying warriors and lost tribes um, to uh, an idea of playing Indian, as Philip 
Deloria has termed it. Um, 19th century subjects produced themselves as Americans through an engagement with national fantasies of a white man's Indian, which is to say an appropriated um, version as opposed to actual Native Americans. So while it, native actual Native nations are being literally absented from the national landscape through ongoing dispossession, removal acts, acts of war, acts of genocide, the figure, the literary figure especially, of the vanishing Indian often took on um, an apparitional, if metaphorical, form. And the, the, figure, the figure of the Indian ghost is profoundly ambiguous. And the figure of the, uh, of the Indian ghost appears in antebellum fiction, in plays, again, po poetry. It's everywhere. Um, but it's, it's, very, it's a very ambiguous figure. Often the Indians, whether it's at spiritualist seances or in um, other literary manifestations, register dissatisfaction with the European conquest of the Americans. But the fact that they are ghosts testifies seemingly contradictorily to the success of that very conquest. Um, it's a complicated logic of abstention, of abstraction, and, a, and of appropriation of a kind of love and theft. So Indians appear, and they begin to appear really early, um, uh, very, very early after the 1848 knockings. I think 1850 is the first one that I found. Um, Indians' spirits begin to appear as guides to the afterworld, as healers, often as kind of disembodied envoys of American historiography, and all of this relies on a cultural understanding of Native Americans, again, as highly spiritual, that would map onto the spirit world this colonial relationship as Indians as guides, um, whether as spirit guides in the seance or the, you know, the kind of older portrayal of the Indian's role as guiding the white man um, as helpers in this, in this manifest destiny. Um, so that said, Spiritual, what, what I found, in, like, that we know, right, that, that, that 19th century Anglo-Americans have this, this, this notion of the vanished Indian. It becomes an easy way to see themselves as not um, implicated in Indian genocide. They can weep sentimental tears over Powhatan um, or, you know, the figure of the vanishing, the vanishing Mohican, the last Mohican. But the strange thing happened because it turns out that when spirits show up at a seance they don't always say what you want them to so spirit guides indian guides came to spiritualist seance demanding justice in this material world and some spiritualists many more than other 19th century anglo-americans begin to work for the cause of Native Americans. So um, using the publications of the spiritualist press to speak out against particular, particular outrages, um, to eventually to work against the Dawes Act, which is a, um, a, a, um, the idea of putting, um, breaking up tribes and putting them on reservations. So there is, again, it's ambiguous, it's complicated, it's at once appropriation, but also these, at least some spiritualists, took seriously the messages that they were being given from these spiritual Indian guides and used them as a way to create, you know, relationships with the act actually ongoing disappearance, genocidal vanishing of, um, of Native nations in that 19th century present. So let's jump back into the late 1850s. Um, 
There's a big crash in 1857, market crash. How did it affect the American mood in the years before the Civil War? And uh, did that have any influence on spiritualists? The 18, 1857 crash, the panic of 1870, of 1857, was the, again, like overexpansion, whatever, the in, declining international economy, blah, 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 blah. But um, the panic of 1857 becomes the, financial crisis that was the really the first worldwide economic crisis. So because, and across the, across the 19th century, there will be panics. There's the 1857, and they get worse as the 19th century goes on. And part of the reason why they get worse is because people for the first time were um, imbricated in the cash economy. They were paid wages. They were often renters. They didn't own their own property. Um, they were in increasingly urbanized. So they didn't have that little plot of land and you know a way to grow food if they were out of work. So with each of those crashes, with each of those panics, um, things get worse. I'm not sure that the crash had that much, or, or I have not found that the crash really affected the mood um, of spiritualists in the way that it... Um, the way that it's, you know, something obviously something like the Civil War, that that at least in what I was reading, um, the sense, and of course they're linked, but the sense of personal loss, of of, of death, um, whether it was on a global scale or in, you know, in, in the familial situation, seemed to be much more important in um, in bringing people to the seance table than the kind of anxieties caused by a panic, and. And interestingly, they're you know they're they're called panics of the nineteenth century, and I, I think as the story goes, it's it's Herbert one of Herbert Hoover's advisors who says, "Don't call it a panic. People panic if you call it a panic. Call it a depression." Um, and then it's called a depression, <laughs> starting with the Great Depression. Um, but the question of why these are already always named after moods is, uh, you know, psychic states, not psychological states, is yet another issue. Mm. But it, to the best of my knowledge, the eighteen fifty seven panic did not have um, a great deal of connection to um, to the growth or or um, really affect the spiritualist movement, to the best of my knowledge. That said, um, the 19th century was a time of tremendous loss. Uh, women died in childbirth. Epidemics decimated communities. Cholera was the epidemic disease of the 19th century. It, it was to the 19th century what the plague was to the 14th. Um, and there were deadly outbreaks in the United States in 1832. In 1849, I mean, in some ways, I hate kind of those kind of causal uh, explanations, but you know, you could argue that 1848, 1849, um, massive death plus this new technology would bring people to spiritualism. And then, obviously, the American Civil War had devastating death tolls on on both sides, which is kind of hard to wrap one's head around, in, mm. uh, just in terms of pure numbers, right? So. On the two sides, at least 620,000 soldiers died from diseases and wounds. That number is equivalent to 2% of the entire population, the U.S. population at the time. 2% of Americans today equals 6 million people. So thinking about the equivalent of a war in four years in which 6 million people died, I mean, it just, it, it's so massive, and it just was not a war that people got over. Um, that said, spiritualism begins before the Civil War. So all of these things, all of these things are linked. And, um, you know, commuting 
understanding those those forms of massive loss is something that you know no no technology really provides us the means to do. Well, let's let's point toward the civil war a little bit. Um, maybe starting with another kind of big picture question. Um, with spiritualism's background in all of these utopian, radical, northern reformist movements, how was spiritualism received across the South? Really differently. Spiritualism is most popular in areas of the Northeast, sometimes the Midwest, eventually California, with the largest grouping of those post-Calvinist Protestant Anglo-Americans. Again, the Northeast, the West. But there were also small groupings in the South, so New Orleans, with its French, Creole, Afro-Caribbean, and Catholic syncretic mixture, became um, a kind of hotbed of spiritualism. And there are relatively smaller numbers of spiritualists across the South. There are many fewer. But I just learned that before the Civil War, the states of Alabama, that is the Alabama and South Carolina legislatures, mm -hmm prohibited seances mm -hmm. and other gatherings in their states, which I found particularly interesting because we, we know the way that um, religion was prohibited and was seen um, for enslaved people as a way to organize. So, so religious gatherings at certain times in different states across the South were made illegal. But the fact that Alabama and South Carolina bothered to put this newly into their laws suggests that perhaps there was there was something going on and that the spread of spiritualism, like the spread of the abolitionist publications that were making their way south from the north, um, was seen as particularly dangerous. Mm -hmm. when, when the Civil War begins, how do spiritualists respond there? They're almost universally pro-union, but they're also kind of amazing ways that the spiritualist press positions itself. So various spiritualist newspapers uh, talk about the importance of spirit helpers in getting the numbers and the news of the war quicker, faster, and arguably more accurate than could other forms of, of news distribution. Um, and I mean, the thing again, the, so the, 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 the amazing thing, the sort of hard thing that I can never quite wrap my head around about the civil war is that, um, most soldiers died as unknown soldiers. There were no dog tags in the 19th century. Often um, soldiers would place letters in their pockets um, with the hope that if their body was found, the letter would be sent to their loved ones. But there was no system for identifying the dead, identifying the wounded, knowing where people could be. I mean, eventually there was. But because of that, that huge lack of, of knowing where people were, the spiritualist press takes on this kind of metaphysical quality where people are turning to it to provide and to, and to get news of the war and presumably news of their loved ones, whether dead or alive. Can you talk a little about the letters of mourning that were published in spiritualist periodicals? Yeah, these are so amazing to me. And like after my book was published, I actually got an email from someone who had just lost, um, just lost a child, and she was reading this book and talking about it in with a group of women who had also lost children. But that idea that the only the only people who understand mourning are those who have experienced loss themselves, 
And the Spiritualist Press, um, I think the, the Shekna is one of the first spiritualist publications to include pages of letters from readers to the editor, um, a man named Samuel Britton, asking for comfort, asking for consolation, and sometimes asking for assistance in contacting dead loved ones. So they're letters of mourning, they're letters of loss, and they're sometimes letters asking for help in making this connection. So thinking about, again, multiplying the idea of media and mediation, that the mediums often worked for the media that is the spiritualist news, newspapers. So um, the Banner of Light, which is one of the uh, largest and, and most widely read spiritualist publications at mid-century, regularly published a column called The Messenger, which included communications to readers from Spirits of the Dead. And they had a medium sort of exclusively for the Banner of Light so again, you have this community in print that's bringing people together uh, beyond the seance circle, and those those letters of mourning um, I, were were so different than the kind of elaborate mourning cultures that um, have been um, so well documented in in um, middle class mourning cultures with you know elaborate dress rituals and and, and clothing and the shifting of colors and you know, crepe-covered houses and the, the kind of etiquette around those Victorian mourning cultures are so different than reading these letters, which are just so raw and 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 a, a really different kind of archive into the 19th century history of loss. When we're talking about kind of the middle class expectations especially around something like mourning that was often coded feminine. Um, and we're looking at the 1870s. What can we say about the connections between the women's rights movement and spiritualists and maybe women in class, kind of between all those points? How was spiritualism operating in that space in the 1870s? Hmm. Is that, is that too nebulous question. a question? No, 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 I like it. I like it. Um, yeah. I mean, as the story goes, spiritualism rises and falls in the 1870s as a kind of, you know, death rattle. I don't think that's true, but um, many historians do. But in the in the 1870s, you have you have people like Victoria Woodhull, who on the one hand are galvanizing a national stage. Um, and on the other are seen as pushing the edges, pushing spiritualism beyond beyond a kind of fringe. But in terms of class, I, I mean, one of the earliest writings on um, on spiritualism came uh, was written by Lawrence Moore about the, the medium as a new profession in the 19th century. So mediumship very early on became a way for women to work and get paid for what they do. And there's a lot of discussion in the spiritualist press about whether or not mediums should be paid, and and but but it becomes this way. It becomes a form of wage work. Um, by the 1870s, that's not so shocking, and those discussions disappear. But um, but I don't know if there's actually a shift in adherence and how that shifts around class. I mean, the the critique of the women's suffrage movement, of course, is that it was mainly peopled or largely peopled by. Um, more affluent elite women, white women. White women, yeah. But, but Anne Brady can run that, that history beautifully. So. <laughs> she can. <laughs> um, but speaking of uh, white women in positions in these movements, um, 
Sojourner Truth, Harriet Jacobs, other black spiritualist women like Harriet Wilson um, often faced bigotry even in abolitionists and equal rights circles as well as utopian and reformist movements. Um, can you describe some of the forces at work in these movements that maintained uh, racist attitudes and relationships even as these groups lobbied for social reform, for abolition before the war, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think the spiritualists were often reformers. Some were radicals. But abolitionism is not equivalent to anti-racism. And it's well known that especially white suffragists were very clear that they deserved the vote and black men didn't. And black women were, you know, another another thing altogether. So white supremacy structured these reform movements, even as many of of the people involved in abolition, the white, you know, the white women, the white people involved in abolitionism, involved in in suffragism, in spiritualism, were on some ways outside of their time. In other ways, those movements were as structured by um, anti-black racism as. The rest of the culture, and I and I say that not as an apologia, but just as an explanation, because I think the fantasy is that you know here were these incredible interracial groups, but and and a place like Rochester was actually very unique in that it did provide for um, for interracial uh, organizing around abolition, but Isaac and Amy Post were actually thrown out uh, of their um, of their Genesee Quakers group for, as the story goes, having hosted a, a wedding of two African-American friends of theirs. So they're at the sort of center of what one would imagine would be the most free-thinking, most anti-racist, uh, you know, communities in the country. You know, it's still, it's, it's still there. What kind of pressures on the spiritualist movement created a space for materialization mediums? And then what did those materialization mediums mean for people who'd been in the movement for a long time that were maybe trans lecturers or spirit rappers? I suppose you could see this as a kind of development of relationship to, to sound and media. So if those, those first raps and knocks, American spiritualism was always a sonic experience. And those first raps and knocks that were heard were, um, were a kind of acoustic a connection to the to the to the worlds of the dead. It was only later that spiritualists began to materialize spiritual, you know, materialized spirits, um, and then eventually ectoplasm and all sorts of other things. You know, guitars would play, pianos would float, you know, uh, disembodied hands would appear in seances. But it does the, the materialization seances were critiqued from some areas of the movement as overly showy, as just theater. That said, they also convinced investigators in a way that the earlier raps and knocks, or they, you know, they convinced some investigators. So famously, in the, again, in the 1870s, William Crooks, um, who was one of, the, one of the scientists who became devo- devoted spiritualist, kind of falls in love with a spirit named Katie King, who appeared um, at a, at a séance? Um, she's she's manifested by um, an, another medium, a woman named Florence Cook, and it's precisely the materialization of those figures that, at least for Crooks and presumably for many others, that was the proof palpable. So it, it, it's as if spiritualism had 
um, had sort of upped its game, moving from the sounds of the raps of the knocks of the telegraph to the development of these new manifestations, you know, kind of paralleling the new developments in photography and then eventually spirit photography. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about some of those investigators. Um, can you describe the societies for psychical research that formed first in London and then in the United States and their approach to spiritualism? That happens later. And here I would say Deborah Blum is your person. Mm -hmm. And her, her, it's so interesting to me the way that people, scholars of, of William James or Henry James, for that matter, um, really do very little around his work uh, around abnormal psychology and 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 the founding of the the societies for psychical research, but but James later in the century sort of t turns and there's there's probably more to be said about the relationship between elite science and spiritualism. So very early on, um, I think it's it's early as like 1850 or 1852, uh, a scientist named Robert Hare, a respected chemist at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, becomes a devoted spiritualist. And there are a number of very prominent scientists. So Hare, Crookes, Michael Faraday, Beacons Experimenting. These kind of elite scientists be, uh, start looking at, at spiritualism and, and seeing if there's anything there. Once James takes it on, you know, going towards the turn of the century, he's very clear and, and addresses the American um, Society for Psychical Research in, in the, I guess it's the first or second year that he's president, about how how important it is that uh, that that spiritualism and these psychic states have been taken out of the darkened rooms and rat hole cellars. That's a quote, um, and into the you know the bright light of of the laboratory. So James is one of the many men at that time who are who are deeply interested in the same thing that spiritualists are interested in the in the relationship between the brain, soul, and psyche of psychic states of abnormal psychology. And, you know, many of those investigators went on to, to bring that work into academic institutions. So um, psychical research goes to Duke University and the first parapsychology lab is, is, uh, is started there. So there are these connections and it's James, but it's a number of, of other people as well. And it's a whole fascinating world. That's great. So uh, let's talk a little more about uh, new thinking about kind of abnormal psychology toward the end of the century, of the 19th century. Um, how did new ways of thinking about the human mind uh, either relate to interest in spiritualism? Or did they did they draw interest away, or did they push interest towards spiritualism? Um, how did how did this kind of new thinking that was displacing some of the and discrediting some of the older sciences uh, of mesmerism, animal magnetism, that kind of stuff we talked about before? How did new thinking about the mind uh, change the way that people related to spiritualism? The amazing thing about the 1870s is that during that time, over the course of about 15 years, a group of the most prominent Anglo-American medical men took up the question of spiritualism. So in, in answer to your question, how did the, the thinking about abnormal psychology, new ways of thinking about the mind, sap interest in spiritualism? It actually increased it, um, but it increased it in a way that was pathologizing. So in the 1870s, a doctor named Frederick Marvin, who's in New York, coins the term mediomania, the notion that spiritualism was causing this kind of mass mania, both in individual psyches, but also in the collective mania and madness. 
But there were doctors at that time who were neurologists. And um, it, in the 19th century, there was, there's basically a split between neurologists who were studying the mind, the brain, the psyche through the nerves, and alienists who were the asylum keepers. So, so, so during this time, neurologists are really looking to professionalize their, you know, their their own little turf, and they do it in many ways, but but you know, not in a small way over the bodies of female mediums. So, neurologists like William Hammond, Silas Ware Mitchell, George Beard, um, and then also prominent alienists on, in um, in London as well all launch a polemical attack on spiritualism. And reading this medical barrage, um, well, it suggests that doctors were concerned with both clinical and epistemological issues, but all of it is about, well, much of it is about medical professionalization. They become, they become the experts um, in, in the new worlds of the soul and the psyche. Did this kind of... Uh formation of these disciplines as fields, neurology, uh, alienists, distinguished from each other, distinct from each other. Um, this interest in professionalization, did it express uh, anything more broadly about changes in American culture? Well, yeah. Um, in the late 19th century, medical doctors were in the process of forming a profession around the caretaking of the diseased spirit or psyche, which would have been a duty traditionally left to religion. So that warfare between science and religion that that spiritualists refused was one that doctors were taking on. And not you know, not all. And certainly William James is really beautiful about his his insistence in in not um, pathologizing mystical experience in the ways that some of them do. But medical doctors' claim to jurisdiction over insanity rested upon um, all they could do to minister was to minister to the body, right? And they did so with bloodletting and all of these forms of quote unquote heroic medicine, which were actually really pretty savage. And the mind was a new terrain. Um, so spiritualists laid claim and doctors laid counterclaim. And they began to study female mediums, sometimes against their will, sometimes with the, you know, full collaboration. But it's a fascinating moment. And it's if historians of psychoanalysis are very clear that psychoanalysis, at least in Europe, was formed around the, the body and speech of the female hysteric, in the United States, you could argue that the American science of neurology was formed around the figure of the female medium. So in the late 1880s, we have all these kinds of things going on. Uh, we also have the development of theosophy and new thought and other kinds of new movements, new communities that are forming uh, kind of in some of the same space where spiritualism had been. Um, and then in 1888, Maggie Fox publishes a book that claims her seances were a fraud. Of course, there's someone else writing it for her, but it's apparently her testimony. What's the effect on spiritualism as a whole when Maggie Fox, one of the Fox sisters, uh, publishes this kind of revelation? Well, it makes the press, as you know. But the actual effect on spiritualism as a whole was little. That's the trick. 
throughout the history of spiritualism, there have been doubters and debunkers, and often those moments of confession actually create more publicity for the movement and have the defenders come back even stronger. Plus, Maggie Fox recants. She, re, you know, that dissipated and broke Maggie Fox would go on tour, right, 40 years or 40 more years after the original Rochester knockings to debunk spiritualism and admit to the very manipulations of bone and joint that doctors had earlier accused her and her sisters of. Um, it, it, it not only confirms the triumph of science over the the triumph of science over superstition, but it really did very little to to sort of change the dial among people who were in. That said, by 1888, the the movement was fading. So you know, she got another. She got to do another tour. Um, you know, whatever people's last act. I you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also the period where, as spiritualism is fading, um, there are some spiritualists like Cora, now Cora Richmond who were working to create something that would be stable and last for spiritualists uh, going forward. She was central to founding the National Spiritualist Association. Um, what was Cora's investment in creating a lasting institutional base for spiritualism, uh, for this movement that had been so anti-institutional, anti-hierarchical? Um, maybe not corporate in particular, but can you describe kind of the spiritualist dedication to creating enduring institutions in the, in the 1880s and 90s as time kind of stretches on? Well, Cora Hatch was getting old. She was an aging child star, a diva who needed to invest her faith in institutions that would outlast her. I mean, I really think that that's, there's, there's something to that in terms of understanding her, um, her, her importance to this movement. But that was very much an, an impulse of the era. And historians have described that era as you know, an age of corporation, incorporation, when Americans become you know, more likely to build institutions and um, you know, to, to move away from the kind of anti-authoritarian communal impulses of the the fervent of the antebellum years. So some of it is that. But I think what's true is that that spiritualist institutions, spiritualist national institutions, never really get off the ground because spiritualists are rather anti-authoritarian as a lot. Um, so even in the 1880s and 90s, it's almost too oh, too it's kind of ending, you know? So it it it, it always read to me a bit like a last gasp. Mm. So I'm interested in in your your view on the pretty common comparison of spiritualism in the United States after the Civil War and in Europe after the First World War. Do you have thoughts on that comparison that's often made and used to talk about kind of national mourning after a cataclysmic loss at that scale? Well, there's certainly a resurgence after World War I. Um, obviously, comparing the 1850s or the 1870s with the 1920s, so much had changed across the turn of that long 19th century. But so much hadn't changed. Um, World War I decimated Europe with a kind of violence and carnage never seen before. Um, The new 20th century had invented new weapons of war, but offered little new to help survivors grapple or cope with the aftermath. Um, You know, people were and are still asking, how can the dead speak to the living as something other than the haunting, seething presence of absence. The resurgence is real. I mean, it's a different resurgence, but 
the, the, the I mean, I'm I'm now I'm now in the 1920s, and um, Thomas Edison hits the 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 press in 1920 with the news that he is building an apparatus to contact the dead. Um, and all of the press is framing it at the time, you know, from the New York Times to the to Scientific America as a new resurgence in spiritualism after the war. That's great. Um, stepping back just a bit, but kind of still in that space of the turn of the 19th century into the 20th, you say in the, in the 80s and 90s, spiritualism is in decline. Um, what is its status, its position, and maybe in the American religious or social landscape? at the turn of the century? But it had found its way to theosophy, which does grow during that time. Um, you know, spirituals are still meeting in camp meetings in the, you know, in, in the 1880s and beyond. They're still doing their work. I think what's true is because the newspapers become less important and the community becomes more diverse, and because many historians look at the Northeast and, and don't look at the West quite as much, that you know they've missed a lot of the rebuilding that goes on in the 1880s and the kind of experiments that are happening outside the, the Northeast or the you know, Central New York and that, that area that had birthed the original movement. So I think that it's less that spiritualism declines. I mean, that would be one way to see it. But it just becomes more difficult to see for all sorts of reasons, and and it it moves it you know it moves into different different formations, but um, but it doesn't die. And then the fact that that in the 1920s it can the resurgence can happen again so quickly, despite the radical differences um, across that you know long 19th century and into the 20th, um, speaks to a kind of enduring power. Mm -hmm. We're going to cover uh, the formation of Casadega, the Casadega community in uh, 1894, which is Ooh, in that period. That's, there you go. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Where it moves outside of the Northeast, but there are places where people decide to, to build something and what they build lasts. Yeah. Um, so as kind of maybe a, a final wrap-up question, um, what do you hope that listeners will take away from uh, 12-hour narrative exploration of 19th century <laughs> spiritualism. Oh, my. Oh, you know, I've answered that question really differently over time. Mm. Um, I mean, I think part of, I mean, the only reason to study history, history is what hurts. And the only reason to study history is to be able to kind of think differently about our present, to write a history of the present. And um, I, I think it's very easy to sort of look back at a past and see irrationality and superstition and a kind of secularization narrative in which we, you know, are, are no longer part of this, this kind of, you know, community, community of believers or dupes or the credulous, the credulous ones. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I, uh, I most people know their sun sign, if not their rising sign. You know, people don't know their blood type, and they know, you know they know their astrology. This hasn't gone away. I mean, what can be seen as a kind of um, you know spurious consolation or after dinner pastime is speaks to a real need for people for for contact for connection, and it's you know it's it's easy to see as 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 superstition um, or you know as a 
a child's kids parlor game. But um, but it was really it was really powerful. And I originally started doing this work because I was and here we are again. Um, the the rise of the evangelical right was very very prominent, and obviously again remains so. But the histories of um, the spiritual or religious left are harder to find. And it was amazing to me the way that the imagination, the possibility that spiritualists could could cross from this world to the next, allow them to collapse distinctions between worlds, between bodies, between genders, between races in some cases, that 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 cosmology allowed for a remaking of things in this world. And that material connection, um, I think, remains very powerful. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.